And the series that we're in right now is a series called Best Story Ever, and it's an overview of the entire Bible. What we're doing is we're taking 15 stories from the Old Testament, and we're taking 15 stories from the New Testament to give us the Bible at 30,000 feet. Now, why? Why do this? Well, it's because when you see the big picture, you see the heart of God in a fresh way. When you see the big picture, you see the heart of God in a fresh way. And so, uh, last week, anyone remember what we talked about last week? Genesis. <laughs> yeah, last week we started the series looking at the story of creation, uh, which answers the question, how did the world come to be? This week, we're going to be looking at the fall, which answers the question, why is the world so broken? Why is the world so broken? And uh, the, the claim I want to make tonight, actually, just even before we look at this passage, is that if you understand this chapter, you will understand what is at the root of every personal, social, and even political pathology. So this chapter claims to give the key to why the world is so broken in all of its manifest forms of brokenness. So um, as we have been doing. I've got a copy of the passage tonight. Um, is there someone who'd want to help pass these out for us? Maybe a volunteer or two? Just, yeah, feel free to come forward. <clears throat> if you're new to Thrive, what we do is we, um, are, we're, we're wanting to have the text really be the primary teacher. So in this talk, I'm just going to flag up a couple of things in the passage to notice. And then when we transition to small groups, which is really the most exciting part of the night, uh, there'll be the opportunity to go a little bit deeper and look at this passage together. So let me read it for us, and you can follow along with the copy that you have. It's in Genesis chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, 
Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all the living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin, uh, and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Okay, so what is there to see in this story? There are three things that I want to just draw your attention to, and then you can go deeper in small groups. But the three things to notice tonight are, number one, the serpent and his tactics. Number two, sin and its impact. And then number three, God and his promise. So the serpent and his tactics, sin and its impact, and God and his promise. So first of all, okay, notice this serpent character. You know, so this chapter introduces him. He hasn't been seen before. And who is he? Who is he? You could say that he is the great adversary, not just of this story, but of the entire Bible. And the reason we know this is because later on in the Bible, it's revealed that the serpent is none other than Satan. And Satan is a name that means accuser. And his entrance is right here in verse 1. Look at what he says to the woman. He says, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Why does he ask a question like that? You know, there are a lot of bad guys in stories. You know, if you think about your favorite movie, you think about your favorite book, there's always a bad guy. Why is it that this particular bad guy, the serpent, you know, he doesn't come out with a machine gun and start shooting and killing everybody. You know, like that's what bad guys in movies do. But what does he do instead? He actually does something far more sinister. And what he does is he deceives. He deceives. Um, So years and years and years ago, this is uh, a book written probably close to 400, 500 years ago, there was an author named Thomas Brooks who wrote a a famous book called Precious Remedies for Satan's Devices. And in this book, it's sort of like, it's almost like like a medical textbook. Like you open a medical textbook, it kind of explains the disease and then it gives you the cure. Well, this book is kind of like that, but instead of, of, of like bodily illnesses, it's talking about spiritual illnesses. And in this book, one of the things that Thomas Brooks does is he points out all the different devices that Satan uses to try to entice us into sin. Let me just give you an example or two. So Satan's device to entice us to sin, number one, Thomas Brooks says, by presenting the bait and hiding the hook. 
by presenting the bait and hiding the hook. Or uh, Satan's device to entice us to sin number two, by painting sin with virtue's colors. By painting sin with virtue's colors. And as you can tell, what he's getting at is the way that when our adversary tries to entice us into sin, he does it by deception. And tonight, you might notice in the text the ways, the particular ways in which the serpent does this. So, for example, um, one of the questions on your handout tonight is to actually go back, compare what God says, the command he gives in chapter 2, with what the serpent says. You might notice that the serpent at one point changes God's word. You might notice how he does that. At another point, he denies God's word. So just, you know, tonight in your groups, notice the way that the serpent deceives. And in particular, just to pull on that thread a little bit more, you know, what's really behind the serpent's deception? You know, what's really going on here? You know, last week, one of the things you might remember, we talked about the way that God gives only one command. (laughs) You know, you think that if God were, as he's often stereotyped as being, you know, kind of a a stingy God who's all about just like, you know, our, our... obedience and rule following, and he probably would have given a lot more than just one command. He gives one command, and it's to not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, you know, if you think about that, like it's kind of a strange command. And, and, and in fact, sometimes a lot of God's commands to us, or a lot of God's ways with us, might seem really, really strange. Uh, they might seem really, really arbitrary. You know, for example, like, don't be greedy. Well, you know, sometimes greed is kind of nice. <laughs> You know, it's kind of nice to be greedy because then you can get things. You have motivation to go out and get rich. <laughs> you know, or like, uh, you know, why does the Bible say uh, to not give in to lust? You know, or why does the Bible say don't have sex outside of marriage? You know, a lot of the things that the Bible prohibits, on the one hand, some of them seem fun. On the other hand, some of them seem arbitrary. I actually have a friend who refers to this as apple theology. (laughs) You know, why is it that God says, don't eat the apple? You know, that seems so arbitrary. And it sure seems like there's plenty of examples in Scripture where God just gives an arbitrary command. (laughs) Apple theology. (laughs) Why does he do it? Why does he do it? Now, you might have noticed this last week. (laughs) The the, the command that God gives, he he does say, you know, there's sort of a, a justification for it. He says, if you eat the fruit, you will die. But, you know, you can kind of ask the the question behind that question. Well, okay, like, why did God arrange things that way? Why did God even put the tree there in the first place? You know, he didn't have to do that. So, So what is this? Why is the command there? Why is the tree there? Is this just apple theology? Is God just being arbitrary? But now when you see the deception of the serpent, you finally understand what this command may actually be about. Because think about it, (laughs) the only thing that Adam and Eve can do other than disobey is to trust in God and to trust that even if they don't understand why the tree is there or why the command is there, they can trust what they know, which is that God is a good God and that even if his ways are higher than their ways, that he can be trusted. And so this, this is the jugular vein that the deceiver goes after. Notice what he basically is saying here. He's basically saying, you know, look, God isn't good. Like, he's holding out on you. 
You know, he's not letting you eat from this tree. Oh, you know, don't mention that you can eat from any of the other trees, the millions and millions of other good gifts that God has given you. But like he brings the attention to the one thing that God has prohibited. And he's trying to get them to believe that God isn't a good God. It's been said, all of our problems stem from unbelief and the goodness of God. And Adam and Eve believe it. They buy into the deception and they eat. But notice, notice where it all begins. Author Tim Keller has said, sin always begins with the character assassination of God in your heart. Think about that. Like, just think about maybe even some of the sin struggles that you've wrestled with. Have you ever thought about them that way? Sin always begins with the character assassination of God in your heart. So notice, number one, the serpent and his tactics. Then number two, notice sin and its impact. Um, You see something else about the nature of sin here besides what we've talked about already. Uh, You know, one of the questions, we actually looked at this last week, you can kind of ask yourself, okay, you know, so they're not supposed to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Does this mean, God, that you're against knowledge? God, are you against wisdom? (laughs) And the answer is no. I mean, there are whole books of the Bible that are dedicated to wisdom. Wisdom books is what they're sometimes called. And so, you know, the sin can't be just gaining knowledge or gaining wisdom in and of itself. Instead, what you discover about sin in Genesis chapter 3 is ultimately that sin comes down to a relational reality because trust is a relational reality. Trust in God is a relational reality. You know, imagine for a minute, you know, imagine that um, you're a parent and imagine that you've got like a little, you know, two-year-old toddler. And so like it's that stage where like they're first beginning to be able to talk and say stuff. And if you know kids, you know that like, what are the things that most come out of their toddler mouths? It's questions. You know, it's like, are we there yet? No. Um, you know, can we do this? No. Why can't we do this? No. Why, you know, why, 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 why? <laughs> there are always questions. Now, just th- think about the kind of relationship that exists between that parent and that child. You know, so anytime your child has a question about something, who are they going to go to? They're going to go to you. They're going to say, Mommy, Daddy, what happens if I put my hand on the stove? You know, mommy, daddy, like, you know, can I eat sugar cereal every morning for breakfast? (laughs) You know, every single question that that child has, they're going to come and take it to you. There's a relationship there because wisdom is found in the person of the wisdom giver. So do you see, do you see what's going on in the Garden of Eden? When Adam and Eve eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, well, that is essentially an act of, you know, what that's expressing is that they're now trying to define good and evil on their own. You know, God is the one who's at the moral helm of the universe. God is the only one who is good, the scriptures say. And so, therefore, good has no definition of its own outside of him. And Adam and Eve say, maybe we can know good apart from God. Maybe we can determine what is good ourselves. Maybe we can take God's place at the helm of the universe. And so do you see that what that points to is a really profound understanding of sin. Sin, you know, we think of sin as just rule-breaking. It's not less than that, but it's so much more. Sin is more than rule-breaking. Sin is ultimately 
a deep and sinister kind of selfishness. You know, so there was a famous theologian, a guy named Augustine, who one time said that sin is man curved in on himself. Sin is man curved in on himself. Instead of curved out in love and trust to God. Isn't that kind of an interesting image? Sin is us curved in on ourselves. And this is why the world is so broken. And the rest of the chapter shows you some of the exact consequences. Um, And all of them, by the way, can be summed up using the word alienation. So let me show you what I mean. So look at verse 7 for a minute on your handout. It says, Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Now this is kind of a strange comment, like... (laughs) Then they knew that they were naked. Well, the thing is, they've always been naked. <laughs> so, so, you know, what does it mean? Now, nakedness. What is that? What is that referring to? Nakedness is a state where you are stripped away to your utmost self. No clothes. No makeup that can add to you, to, to, to who you are, or that can enhance who you are, or maybe distract other people from who you are. Like, if you are in a state of nakedness, you are as purely yourself as you could be. And before, this, before sin comes into the world, Genesis 2, what does it say? They were naked and unashamed. In other words, they were completely at home with themselves completely at home with themselves. You know, sometimes we're not at home with ourselves. You know, uh, you know, why is it that many of us actually really kind of hate seeing ourselves naked, like in front of a mirror? Like, we're not at home with our appearance, maybe. Like, you know, we might think we're too fat or too skinny or too this or too that. And then there's the fact that, you know, why is it that many of us hate to be naked emotionally, spiritually, socially? You know, to really admit to God or to others or to ourselves what we're really thinking in our heads or really feeling in our hearts. You know, why is that? The reason is that we're not at home with ourselves. We're, in fact, alienated from ourselves. Sin is the ultimate culprit behind all this. Sin changes everything. We, we, we are in a state because of sin where we can't stand the fact, we can't bear to admit that deep down we know that we're not perfectly acceptable. We know that we're not what we should be. And the result of that is what you see in this chapter. What you see here is that sin leads to shame. They're ashamed of themselves, number one. Sin leads to shame, which then leads to secrecy. Sin leads to shame, which leads to secrecy. Look at verse 8. What do they do? They hide from God. God is you know, kind of going on his evening walk, which he probably did with them regularly, and he can't find them. <laughs> Well, he knew where they were, but he asks where they are. And where are they? Well, they've hidden themselves. They've hidden themselves among the trees of the garden, and they've hidden themselves behind fig leaves. They can no longer bear to look on themselves without hatred. And now they believe that God can't look on them anymore without hatred. And so what do they do? They hide. Um, you know, years ago I heard, I think I actually read, a cute little story. Actually, this is another two-year-old story tonight. I've got lots of toddler stories. You know, I guess speaking out at camp to a bunch of elementary schoolers has just made me think of kids this week. But anyway, a story about a little girl, and she's out in her backyard, 
and her grandma is there kind of babysitting her. And you know grandmas can sometimes just be a little, a little too indulgent, right? Well, she, the little girl is out in her backyard, and she's making mud patties. And you know if you're a two-year-old girl and you're making mud patties, what's going to happen? <laughs> it's going to look like you've got like melted chocolate all over your face and your hands and down your shirt. And so she knows that, you know, my grandma is probably not going to be very pleased with this. So she's kind of sitting there in the mud with her back to her grandma, but she knows her grandma's back there. And, you know, and, and the words of, that only a two-year-old could say, she just, as she's making her little mud pies, she just says, don't look at me, grandma, okay? <laughs> don't look at me, grandma, as though her grandma isn't actually already aware, you know? And, and it's just, this is what we do to ourselves, to others, and to God. Every time we take a step closer to sin, what do we say to God? We say, don't look at me, God. Just look away. <laughs> or maybe we say that to ourselves. We allow ourselves to look away from our own sin and imperfection because we can't bear to look on our own nakedness. And then, it's not just alienation from themselves. It's alienation from each other. You know, there, when it comes to hiding, you know, sin leads to shame, uh, sin leads to shame, leads to secrecy, hiding. Hiding has as many tactics as the serpent has schemes. So in verse 9, God calls to Adam. What does Adam say? Verse 12, the woman whom you gave me <laughs> to be with me, she gave me of the fruit, uh, of the fruit of the tree, and I ate. So Adam's sin, Adam's hiding, leads to a total social breakdown between him and the one human being he loves the most, his wife. He, what is he doing? He's shifting blame. He's accusing her. He's accusing God. He's minimizing. He's not taking responsibility. Sin leads to shame, leads to secrecy. And, I mean, and don't you just see how this leads to just every form of personal, social, political pathology? You know, you make a mistake at work, what do you do? If you're like me, I actually did this today, <laughs> you instantly think of all the reasons why, you know, it wasn't really your fault. You, know, you might think, oh, well, you know, if my coworkers had kind of picked up their slack a little bit more, then it wouldn't have happened. Or if my boss had given me better guidance or directions, then it wouldn't have happened. Or you're in a relationship, and your relationship is hitting some problems. And, you know, you probably admit, you know, because you're a good, humble Christian, well, of course, you know, I've got a couple of things kind of on my side of the problem sheet. But, you know, really, in your mental ledger, it's the list of the other person's problems that's a mile long, and yours is only a couple inches. <laughs> You've ever done that before? I, I've done that before. Um, you know, for, for my mom, for years, uh, she, she said that she had a long season where she just would pray again and again and again, God, would you please change my husband? <laughs> God, would you please change my husband? And guess what? She eventually came to realize that really what God wanted to do was to change her. And he did. <laughs> So don't you see why, if this is what sin is, if sin is so much deeper than just rule-breaking, uh, rule breaking, that it, it ultimately is behind all of the issues that we see in our world, whether that's individual and personal or social and political. But then last of all, one last thing to notice, notice God and his promise. Uh, do you notice the first thing that God does? Or actually, put it this way, do you notice the first thing that God doesn't do? Do you notice that he does not curse Adam and Eve? In fact, he doesn't do that at any point in this story. The first thing he does is he curses the serpent. He goes to the real culprit um, who kind of initiates it, and he says, verse 15, I will put an enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. 
this statement in verse 15 is a promise. And you can actually put this down, you know, just make a mental note of this verse uh, because this verse is one of the most important verses in the entire Bible. This promise is that the fall is not going to last forever. I mean, look at what it says. Uh, It's basically saying that one day the woman is going to, you know, from her family line, there's going to come someone. We don't know much about this someone, but here's what we do know. We're told here, he shall bruise your head. Now, this is talking, about this, talking to the serpent. So this, this person, this person from the line of the woman, so it's, you know, it's a human being, right? This human being, he's going to bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now, interesting, you might notice that there's kind of some warfare going on. But notice that the warfare, it's, it's not, a, not a level playing field. He shall bruise your head. Well, that's a fatal wound. You will bruise his heel. That's a non-fatal wound. Interesting. I wonder what that might refer to. You can talk about that tonight in your small groups. So this is a promise that despite the fact that we are still to this day living in the wreckage of this chapter, that the fall is not forever and that God has a plan that involves sending a human being who's going to reverse the curse. So three things to notice tonight. The serpent and his tactics, sin and its impact, God and his promise. Let me pray for us, and then we'll head to small groups. Uh, Father, just thank you for this chapter, and um, I pray now that as we get the chance to just wrestle with it and talk about it together in community, uh, Lord, that you would just um, help us see the things that you Uh, have for us in this chapter that we would know you um, and love you more deeply. In Jesus' name, amen.